Managing Violence Podcast, episode 87. We're talking front lines of celebrity protection with Mr. Todd Fox. The Managing Violence Podcast is proud to be partnered with Fuji Sports. Fuji Sports manufactures the highest quality of judo, jiu-jitsu, and MMA gear. Everything from geese to rashies, shorts, gloves, pads, bags, mats, finger tape, everything you could possibly need for training. I've personally been a customer and supporter of Fuji Sports dating back to my very first BJJ gi in 2007. Since then, they've been a go-to brand for me, whether I was chasing judo gear, BJJ gear, MMA gear, or just convenient bags to carry everything around in. The gi I wear to Krav Maga training now is actually a Fuji Sakai. Uh, it's one of the most comfortable and most durable gis I've ever owned, and yes, they even come in black for the ninjas in the audience. As a listener of the show, simply enter the discount code MVP10 at checkout for 10% off your order, and a percentage of the sale will also go to the show to keep us on the air. Savings for you, commission for us. What's not to love about that? Uh, MVP10 for 10% off at fujisports.com or fujisports.com.au for the Aussies. Some exclusions apply. Thank you, Fuji Sports, for years of high-quality gear and for supporting the show. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Managing Violence podcast. I am not going to talk to you very much at all before we get straight to our guest. Our guest today is Mr. Todd Fox. He has a distinguished career in military law enforcement and then an incredible 22 years at the front line of executive protection and celebrity protection from hostile environments and war zones to, uh, well, to hostile environments and war zones with celebrities, uh, navigating LA and everywhere else in the world. Uh, Todd is an incredible martial artist, but uh, also has a plethora of experience with real world violence and the prevention thereof. So I'm not gonna waffle, we're gonna get straight to Mr. Todd Fox. I'm joined here on the Managing Violence podcast by Todd Fox. Todd, thanks for joining us. Thank you, sir. Yeah, Todd, uh, you've got uh, a bio that is that is hard to cover in a, in a couple of seconds, but uh, I'll hit the high points. You're a former Marine, former law enforcement officer. You've been involved in high-end executive protection and corporate security for over 20 years. You were a professional MMA fighter, and 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 not just not just a professional MMA fighter, but a professional MMA fighter in the late 90s, early 2000s, which for those that may not have followed the sport that long, was kind of a different thing to now. I, know, I noticed on Sherdog, your first fight was a decision after one round of 20 minutes, which uh, was, is uh, that's, that's, that's probably a story in itself. Uh, you've, uh, you've gone on to write a number, of, uh, a number of articles. You've written a book for, for civilians. There's a lot of stuff on the, that we could talk about, but I'll give you a chance just to introduce yourself and just sort of walk us through uh, your journey before we, we dive into the real meat of the conversation. Yeah, I think you, you you basically covered it. You did a good job. So uh, as a young guy, I was in the Marine Corps. I was fighting. I have multiple black belts in traditional arts and then black belt in jiu-jitsu, train Muay Thai, always been kind of um, reality focused. Not to say that I don't respect the art, but I'm more interested in fighting than I am, you know, the art side of it. Um, law enforcement uh, with the SRT team, uh, some counter-narcotics operations, South America, um, you know, a long kind of standard history of that stuff coupled with, with security and our security business, I'm probably close to 80% entertainment. So, um, an actor is going to shoot a film in North Africa. We're going to set up the entire structure for them, or, you know, they're going down to Brazil to shoot something. We're going to sort that all out for them. And then uh, a lot of music tours, we've got about 
30 artists, um, you know, high-end touring acts that are touring stadiums and arenas around the world. Um, and then we have about 10 to 12 percent executives and then the remainder uh, as dignitaries, governmental officials and stuff like that. So um, the books, as you mentioned, you know, I've written three books. The last one was for civilians and is for civilians. It's for people that don't come from the military or law enforcement. Kind of gives them an idea of how to look at things from the perspective of a protector so that they can just get the mindset and kind of the, the mental focus that they need and, and understand how to interpret certain things and, and put certain measures in place to protect themselves, their families, their businesses, stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. There's going to be a lot that we can draw upon there. Long-time listeners of the show will know that uh, that's my jam. <laughs> I, lo I love the pre-contact stuff. So it's, I love it too. I love it too, man. It's uh, maybe it's just because I'm lazy and it's 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 less effort. But anyway, uh, let's uh, let's let's have a bit of a bit of a dive into some of this stuff. So I'm I'm curious uh, about uh, I'd be remiss not to not to pull on the string of, of MMA in the '90s because uh, I start I got into MMA around maybe 99 2000 so around, around about that era what was that like preparing for a fight back then i mean I thought, this isn't we're going to talk about the whole conversation but I, i'm too much of an old school MMA nerd to not ask that question uh, well i'll back up just to give you context so you really understand this even better first of all sure dog doesn't list six of my fights that's how old yeah. this stuff is so what you're referencing i think is probably like 97, 98. I think the one you're talking about, the fight you're talking about was in a thing called Universal Challenge, um, which at the time was illegal because we weren't allowed to have them. And by the way, they were not called MMA fights. They were called No Holds Barred. Yeah. And that particular one was called Valley Tudo. So that was a Valley Tudo fight and it was in a gym and it was closed doors and you had to be invited. Um, and it, it was really unique. And that was a couple of years into it. Um, so, the early days, like my, my exposure initially while I was in the Marines was to a guy named Rodrigo Vaghi, who is a six degree black belt under Hicks and Gracie. Um, and in the Midwest in the United States, it didn't exist. So it was basically coastal, like New York, LA is pretty much San Francisco, pretty much where you could find jujitsu at that time. And um, I had been doing bare knuckle karate, a very little bit of boxing in the Marine Corps. Um, and I was teaching karate and, um, I was lucky enough to have a really great mentor, super, super great mentor, who was a Marine and a former cop and a, and a bare knuckle karate guy. And uh, when he found out that Rodrigo was literally in St. Louis where I lived, he's like, no, no, man, you got to go train with him. It's, you know, you've done enough of this stuff. You're, you're good enough at this. You need to go learn that. That stuff is essentially like magic, right? It's, it's like this voodoo. And, um, you know, most teachers at that time wouldn't send their students to train at other schools. I don't know where you come from in your martial arts background, but it used to be pretty rigid. Like you only study one style and this is the way and you must master it. And, and my guy, my instructor, luckily was not a traditionalist. And he said, hey, listen, I, I, I love having you. You're great but go over there and do that. And, uh, and I went over there and did it and, and uh, it was phenomenal. And, and Rodrigo immediately got us into NHB. Uh, training sessions were unique in that he didn't really care too much about making money. He was really focused on making fighters. Um, as I'm sure you can imagine, that's not a great thing uh, for a school, a, a school that's open to the public. People come in and he's basically thrashing them. 
Um, you know, I've, I've talked to a lot of people about this. He ran off more than 90% of the people that came through the doors because the conditioning that it would take to endure his practices, it just wasn't there. And most people didn't want to pay money to be puking, you know, and that's, that's what it was. We had, you know, these 50 gallon containers, like industrial trash cans at either end of the gym and people be puking all the time. It was just, he'd run them hard, hard, hard. And then he was left with guys that were just super tough. And, and that was it. And so he would keep the techniques basic. So you would master, master three or four basic moves, and then you'd have variations to each of those moves. But we never spent much time, you know, doing new moves. It was a lot of time, you know, reps would be 100 to 200. So, okay, you're going to do 100 arm bars from the mount, 100 arm bars from the guard, 100 triangles from the guard. We're going to do this new technique, whatever it is, and you're going to do that 100 times. And then we're going to do this little variation. You'll do that 50 times. And then you're going to spar for an hour or whatever it may be. And that was class, but it was intense. There was no talking. There was no music. There was, it was nothing but training. And so it was two hours of intensity. And, and you know, I can't speak to the Australian culture, man, but the American culture was not prepared for that at that time. Uh, because as you probably know, traditional martial arts were, you know, you bowing in, doing maybe a light warm up, you doing katas or drilling techniques, but there wasn't a whole lot of contact. There wasn't a, a super high volume uh, in terms of numbers. There isn't a crazy amount of intensity. And Rodrigo brought all those things. So we, we lost, we probably lost a good 500 students unnecessarily. So in hindsight, it was a bad business decision, but man, I'm, I'm so thankful for that experience. Yeah, man. Look, at what, I started jujitsu in 2005 and, and even then, like it was a completely different environment to what it is now. Like it's just, everyone was hard as nails. Like if you did jujitsu in, in the early 2000s, like it, you were pretty much because you wanted to fight NHB. Uh, and, and no one was doing it because they thought they were going to get famous because no one was famous for doing NHB, right? There was so, no money. Yeah, so it was, it was usually like a bunch of criminals and a bunch of young guys that wanted to do themselves. <laughs> and uh, and there's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of cross facing and eye gouging and stuff going on uh, even in jiu-jitsu class. It was it was it was not the uh, not the uh, matching rash guards uh, that that we have uh, in, in modern jiu-jitsu. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just that it's uh, it was a different environment. You know what? You bring up a great point because um, to give you some contrast, uh, we never wore rash guards. Um, we had little tight kind of Speedo-like shorts. We trained in them and we fought in them. And now the people are like, oh, that's kind of weird, dude. But we didn't think anything of it because that's what you did, right? In Valley Tudo, which pretty much for the most part was Brazilians and Japanese. And then the Americans kind of came to the party roughly third, right? Uh, the Dutch also kind of entered that party around the same time. Um, but we didn't have anything on like, it, you know, ringworm obviously was rampant and MRSA and all that kind of stuff that comes with it. But we never thought anything about like literally just wearing some speedos and rolling and punching and kicking and throwing and joint locking and choking. And, and now like you see the market that exists, right. <laughs> and the marketing that surrounds it, it's a massive market, but back then they didn't have that. They could have tried to sell any of that stuff. Nobody would have bought a thing. Yeah. Well, I think, I think we've also evolved and realized that if we want the art to continue, it has to be commercially viable. Right, we can't, we can't just it does. It does. comes in, you know, that's not that's not how it's going to work. It's uh, so yeah, it's, that's a positive thing in general. But let's move on to the actual topic because otherwise, I'll, otherwise, I'll just sort of keep asking that. <laughs> MMA. My my listeners be like, "Well, you brought on this guy. Why didn't you ask him these things?" So, uh, one thing I'd, I'd like to sort of talk about, just because uh, it's unusual to have someone who's who's worked in that celebrity protection space or high end security space for as long as you have, 
is so, like, we, we, we're constantly looking at threat profiles. We're constantly looking at how things are evolving. And, uh, and this will lead us into where we're going uh, towards the end of the interview. But I'm curious, when you, you started you started your company in, well, was it 2000? 99, 2000? 99, yeah, 99. Sure. So, I mean, so in that time, I mean, just looking, I mean, I'm a security guy. So I'm looking at the perspective of global events. I mean, we've got 9-11, we've got a raise, we've got the rise of, uh, of terrorism. Not that terrorism wasn't a thing before then, but certainly awareness of it and frequency increased. We've got... Um, We've got a lot of geopolitical moves. We've got access to information with the internet. Uh, the ability to gather intel has, has increased. The ability to, to like, your, your, the importance of counterintelligence has also uh, increased. What are some of the things that you've kind of mapped out that you've had to adapt to on the fly and now become sort of, I, I guess, normal normal part of your prepping for for a, a, a gig? Yeah. So. Um, it's, it's a pro and a con, right? So as things advance, uh, you know, things advance for the bad guys too. And a lot of times actually the bad guys drive that, right? So a lot of times we'll get uh, a platform or a system that, that bad guys are using because they're evading some type of intelligence agency. And we utilize that because that's a better system for us doing business and for people can't get that information. So the first thing I would say is that a number of businesses in the 2000-ish timeframe kind of uh, were stood up and those businesses uh, essentially sold information to security companies, essentially intelligence, right? Like a, a Stratfor type uh, organization who you could buy a membership and they would basically forward you information on any of the regions that you signed up for and or you can get with their subject matter expert and then you have that direct line of communication, they'd pump stuff out. But the truth of the matter is that the bad guys also had access to that stuff and they were a little bit quicker for the most part. Um, they had uh, better kind of covert techniques. They were faster at getting stuff uh, out. Um, and in the end, what happened for us is we we really kind of uh, utilized that in, um, in concert with our guys on the ground. So as you know, the guys on the ground in real time who are vetted, who you trust, those are your most important players. So we're trying to forecast and predict and look at the information that we have available to us. But in reality, that trained up person who's there, and, and I'll just give you an example, like for us, Mexico is a big area of operations, super violent, you know, uh, kidnappings are through the roof there, it surpassed several years ago, Colombia for kidnappings, um, you know, and outside of a proper war zone, it's, it's, it's a violent, violent place. And we're doing tons of business there. So my guys that I can trust who I vetted, and it's very hard to vet them because there's not a lot of background information that you can pull from those people. So what you have to do is you have to bring them in. You have to spend time with them. You have to learn about them. You have to learn about kind of how they do business. And then you have to essentially, for lack of other terms, give them bad information, see if it flushes out somewhere. Uh, you have to compartmentalize what you tell them, how you tell it to them. And then you have to test them three or four or five times. You have to leave things laying around, whether it's money or information. And, and, and it sounds kind of shitty, but the truth is that that's the only way to truly vet them. So once we got people that were vetted in these key regions, those were our guys that we trained up. So once we got them, we trained them, we could rely on them, we'd get them, you know, phones, we get them computers, we get them all the things that they needed. And now we have our own little tiny network, but a trustworthy tight little network. Um, and, you know, we, we had to follow through on all the promises we gave to them, we could we could never leave them high and dry, but it's paid dividends for us, especially in in Mexico in in Colombia, in Brazil, in the north of Iraq, um, those places, you know, we're wired tight, because we made that commitment in that timeframe that 2000 ish 
time frame. So the 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 security industry is moving much faster. It's much broader. You can go much deeper. Uh, I'm sure you know you can get a, a very significant background check on any person in the world in a very short period of time. Um, I can look at you know what you've bought on your credit card. I can look at every utility you've used. I can look at all the people you've called or texted on your phone. Um, you know they were using even in 2000 these pinging systems where I would send you this message saying, hey, here's a pill to enlarge your penis. If you don't want to get this pill, uh, this text anymore, reply once and not receive these texts. Well, when you reply one, what's happening is you're giving up your location. Now we can see where you're at because you just don't want to be harassed anymore. And so we we're using all kinds of systems to, to get information. And then we were filtering all of our information through other systems. So, you know, even if you're, let's say you're, you're sending a text, your text, I wouldn't give you my number. If, if you were a third party, like a local national I had to deal with, I'd give you this middle number. And what happened is you'd text that number and then that number would go to uh, a site and then that site would forward it to me. So you'd never really know where I was at and you wouldn't be able to track me. And with the internet of things connecting to everything, um, our biggest problem now is really our clients because our clients are saying, hey, I'm in this hotel at this like, uh, Maybe, maybe don't give that out unless you want 5,000 people outside either protesting or, you know, wanting to hug you or kiss you. So, uh, you know, a lot of changes, a lot of uh, adaptation on our part, but the, the biggest challenge still remains the client. Oh, absolutely. And, and look, I, I've done a fraction of the executive protection that you have, but, uh, or, or close personal protection with celebrities, but that, that was the biggest frustration for me being security minded and then going to work with celebrities is that their job is to actually undo everything I do, right? So that, their job is to be visible. Their job is to interact with fans. Their job is to be personable and and look like they don't care about their security greatly because they just want to be with their people, right? That's how they sell albums. Well, that's how that that's how they get ratings for their movies or their shows, right? So, so it's almost like you have to accept that their job is to is counter is counter to your job. You just have to fit your job around what they need to do and and know how to have that conversation and influence their behavior where it's where appropriate. And obviously, some celebrities are better than others with that, but. Uh, yeah, you're absolutely spot on there. And, and for us, you know, with 80% being entertainment, we deal with a lot of publicists and they're literally working against you. And, and I think, you know, they play games and you have to adjust to your environment and you have to play the game. Uh, some stuff you have to share, other stuff you can compartmentalize and give them bits and pieces and you could change the plan uh, after you've provided to the publicist based on, you know, the situation evolving and you need to do what you needed to do. And, um, you know, they play games and if you don't adjust, you're putting your client in harm's way. So we're talking about serious stuff versus promotion and publicity. Uh, you know, I, I respect that they take their job seriously. And I, I certainly don't want to, um, you know, uh, mess with them if I don't have to. But at the end of the day, you know, my job is very simple. It's, it's singular is to keep my clients safe, safe from physical violence, safe from reputational damage, safe from unintentional hazards, safe from, you know, anything that could harm them and, uh, you know, loss of personal information is at the top. And, uh, you know, the publicist is doing their job and I respect that. And the artist is doing their thing to, to continue, you know, in the realm that they're in, but, you know, we get hired for something very specific and that's a whole nother conversation because sometimes the people that hire you don't really understand what it is you're there to do and how you need to go about doing it. So yeah, they can't. You're, you're you. requirement. Yeah. yeah. So it's like you're in a, you're an insurance requirement rather than something they're informed about. Yeah. That's it. They don't really know why you're there. And a lot of them think, you know, that it's about physical violence. And a lot of times that's the lowest, right? We're, we're 
physical violence is there. Uh, for, for us, a lot of times that's easier to identify and we're trained up to handle it. But again, the loss of, uh, of personal information, you know, public embarrassment, uh, unintentional hazards because we're walking down the street and there's a hole in the ground and you don't see it or there's scaffolding above you and something's dropped to the sky. Those things are much more likely to harm our clients than a direct threat. Not that a direct threat isn't there. We, we have plenty of physical threats, uh, but the reality is those things are constantly present and people are constantly trying to poach the information uh, uh, and affect their their stature in public. And then of course, anytime you have construction, anytime you have growth, anytime you have movement and humans, and uh, we could get into another conversation about something like this. Anytime I'm doing this, I'm distracted. And if I'm doing this, and in America in the last month, we've had three or four people killed because they're doing this on their phone. One was run over by a backhoe, one had a truck back over them. I mean, it's, 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 it's madness. So to your point, I, I agree. There's, there's a lot going on in figuring out that individual, how, how um, savvy that particular person is, how much they care. Um, you know, I've had people tell me like, stop doing this because it's killing X or Y or Z. And that's more important to me than, than my safety. Yeah. Okay. Roger that. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a process of risk management, right? You got to know what, what your risk appetite is and what your risk tolerance is. And like, we're, okay, we're prepared to take these, this gamble for this outcome. And okay, cool. If, if that's, if that's your thing, then, then that's what we've got to do. Uh, we're, we're trying to make sure it doesn't get too out of, out of proportion. Which actually yeah. leads us into into what I want to spend most of the interview talking about, which is what are some of the things that uh, that we can do if we take it from the celebrity protection world? Uh, a, a lot of what you're doing is planning and preparation and systems and and be able to think on your feet because occasionally a client is going to change their plan of what they wanted to do or the nightclub they wanted to go to or whatever, right? There's going to be a lot of adapt, adaptation. You learn very quickly to put preventative controls in place or proactive controls in place. Uh, I know you've just written about this, so uh, I'll, I'll just open up. What, what are some of the key things that, that you think civilians can take away from that world to increase their own personal safety? Well, I, I think there are a lot of little uh, compartmented pieces that, that you need to pull together. And that's why I wrote the book. It basically pulls existing systems that have been tested over time and in different realms and put them in one spot um, to kind of shorten the learning curve. Um, one of the things, and, and we've, we've touched on this a little bit, but um, one of the things is kind of to understand the equation that you're dealing with, right? The, the equation where we're talking about attack type scenarios, um, the attacker has a lot of power. And when we look at it, we break it down into four basic areas, right? So in an attack, you have the time of the attack, the location of the attack, and the method of the attack. All three of those things, which is 75%, go to the attacker. The only thing that the target gets or, or the potential victim gets is the response to the attack. Um, and as you know, we never really want to be reactionary. We want to be proactive. And unfortunately, in that situation, it's a reaction. And for a reaction to beat an action is very, very difficult. So the only way to do that is through advanced training and realistic training and to create that connection, that synapse between the neurons, right? So this is kind of where we get into the Klein work, right? The recognition prime decision making. So I have some frame of reference to understand that situation through, and that allows me to act quickly 
quickly and do something. Okay, I've been in a similar situation and this is this was a solution for that. So now I'm going to try to implement that. Um, and so we spend a lot of time doing that. We train guys up on understanding that attacker equation, understanding what they can do to, to improve their uh, response. Um, and the most likely response that you're going to have in that situation is going to be X or Y or Z. How do we manipulate that now? How do we improve the efficiency of that particular response? And so we, we do a lot of ad nauseum training where we're doing hundreds of reps. I'm not going to show you a technique. You do it three times and we move on. You, you don't know it. You don't understand it. So we spend a lot of time doing that. Um, a lot of our job and a lot of the training that we do uh, has to do with environmental analysis, right? So the, the buzzword in the last 10 years has been situational awareness. Oh, I'm situationally aware of situational awareness. But really what it is, is, is going into any given environment and being able to, to look at it and make quick assessments. The quicker you can make them, the more efficient you're going to be and the higher the chance of having a positive outcome if you have any type of nasty situation occur. So um, a simple one that we used to do uh, came from the Marine Corps is baseline anomaly, right? So what is the baseline of this environment? What's normal in here, right? How many people are normal in here? What are those people doing? What are those people wearing? What are the lighting conditions like in here? What is the mood? What is the ambiance in here? Uh, at what times do people come and go? That's a baseline. If I understand what the baseline is for a given environment, I may be in 30 or 50 or 100 environments a day if I'm a protection guy because I'm going at advancing sites and looking at different places in different cities or different countries. Um, once I get the baseline, I establish that baseline. Now I'm looking for, I can look for anomalies, right? Something that is abnormal, something that's a change or something different, right? Once I say, okay, well, that doesn't fit. That thing doesn't fit. Most of the time when things don't fit, it's what we call benign. It's, it's not harmful to us. So we break down anomalies into two categories, right? So you have an anomaly that is benign. It's not going to hurt you. It's just that guy happens to be here as a homeless guy and he wandered in here. Uh, and then you have anomalies that are critical. And the critical anomalies are the ones that we're worried about. And that's going to change our behavior. So for our people, we typically train them in response. They have three options. Anytime you have an anomaly, and the Marine Corps' mantra is BAD, B-A-D, which is baseline plus anomaly equals decision, B-A-D. Baseline plus anomaly equals decision. So what we train them is, is if you make that decision, the decision is one of three decisions, right? One, continue as planned. And when I continue as planned, what I'm saying basically is I have the skills, the capabilities, the, the assets, the team, the environment to deal with that. If that anomaly is critical, we have what it takes to offset that to remove that, to neutralize that, whatever it's going to be to keep our principles safe. Uh, it's not the best course of action normally if you have a, a potentially critical anomaly to continuous plan unless you're super skilled or unless it, you know, the situation dictates that you kind of push through. Um, the, the second one, which is to change behavior, change pattern, change process, change movement, change dates, change time, to change, right? Continue, change. Mm -hmm. The change is the most common. Okay, well, I see this going on here. And, and I think the common one that, that we talk to because people are familiar with it is, you know, if you're in the Middle East and, and you know that in the bazaar, there's essentially a lot of activity, a lot of foot traffic. There's men, there's women, there's children, there's activity, there's call to prayer, there's all this stuff happening. And if you get your baseline at the same time, meaning the same day of the week, at the same time of day, in the same time of the year, not any special religious holidays, you know what it is. And all of a sudden you go in, and you have an anomaly above or below the baseline. So an anomaly above the baseline means that something is added to the environment. An anomaly below the baseline means that things have been removed from the environment. So now I get there and all of a sudden this bazaar, this market was 
teaming with people uh, the same time last week and even maybe hours ago. And now it's not. And all the women and children are gone and doors are shut and windows are shut and people are kind of scanning and assessing. That's not good. They know something you don't know. And at that point, you really want to change your behavior. So in that case, as soon as we identify that, say we go over three blocks, up four blocks, over two blocks, and we maybe, if we have to go back into that space, we enter from a different way or we get to a position of coverage where we can actually take it in for a while before we go in. Or the last one, which is very hard for security guys, very hard for Marines, very hard for SWAT guys to do, which is cancel the operation altogether. Hey, something's a mess. We're going to come back another day, another time, and we'll sort it out. So usually the mission will dictate that, not just the team, right? And so that applies to normal people, right? And so we try to convey that in terms of, of your thought process when you go to any given environment. You could be a normal person going to a party, right? or a bar, let's say a bar. Uh, we try not to go to the bars where there are violent fights every time you're there. That's probably an indicator. If you don't wanna be in a fight, you don't go there or you don't go there uh, a certain day of the week or at a certain time of day, right? Cause let's say it's Friday and Saturday night and it's between you know 11 o'clock at night and two in the morning, you know there's gonna be fights there and they're gonna be violent and you don't wanna fight, so don't go there. The second thing that we typically do is say, hey, there are pre-attack or pre-event indicators that are occurring around me because I know baseline anomaly. I know, hey, that's not normal. I see this thing going on. I see this ramping up. Let's GTFO. We're out of here. And we leave, right? And then the last thing is we get stuck or we weren't smart enough to see or figure out what it was or we weren't quick enough to act and now we're stuck here now you're stuck in fighting right into the fight mode so for us as i'm sure you're very well aware fighting is is almost a failure because our job is to get them out right and say gtfo we're out of here we're not going to be there for the fight it's counter to marines it's counter to swat guys it's counter to the guys that i come from and mma fighters too you know because you want to go to the fight Protection is the opposite. It's evacuation, evacuation. And, and ideally, don't be where the fight's at. And I would say that 99% of, of the civilian world, right, of, of normal citizens, that fits perfect. Protection does. Not the military, not specialized law enforcement, not fighting, but the protective mindset, right, which is, hey, don't go where there are problems. Leave it the sign of problems and then fight if you don't have a way out and you haven't identified a way out and you can't get out. Um, so those are kind of some of the things that, that we do. Um, I mean, this could go on for days, buddy. <laughs> we, we got days of, of activities and terrain analysis and, and threat assessments and human motives and how to think or, or, or look at problems. I mean, that in that same vein, um, when I go somewhere, and I'm sure you do the same thing, I have to know where the problems can be. Uh, coming from like you see there's a door behind me over here uh, I have to know that somebody can come through there somebody can come through the window I know where people can come from, and I also know what the problems can be so before I can do anything else whether it's fighting gunfighting or martial arts fighting I have to know that it's capable that person is capable of coming through this space and doing this thing attack wise so that's the first thing then I have to know what the possible solutions are to those problems and then the third thing is being able to implement the correct response under stress. And those things seem very intuitive, very simple, common sense, but we never use that, right? I have to know where the problems can come from and what they can be. 
I have to know the possible solutions that could solve that problem. And I have to be able to implement those solutions under stress and, and it, the correct solution. Cause there are a lot of solutions that aren't correct and you'll end up in jail if you, if you use that particular solution. And so that's where we spend a ton of time as well. And that applies to normal people in, in everyday life. Absolutely. I love what you said there about, uh, about the priority shift and how, how that, you know, it's different obviously between protection and, and civilian or, uh, or, you know, uh, law enforcement, military and civilian. It's also going to be different in different times of our lives, right? Because uh, this is something that I that I dealt with as a as a young man, right? I was very comfortable waiting for the fight, <laughs> like it, like I was I was working as a bouncer, like I was very I was very comfortable with seeing the fight coming, knowing when it's going to happen, and then doing what you had to do if you couldn't yeah, if you couldn't get them out of there earlier, then so be it, right? Uh, but as, and even in my normal off duty civilian life, I uh, it, it, like. I was comfortable, like I would be the guy that ran towards the the issue, right? To try and protect other people that weren't as equipped as I was. And, uh, but then when I had kids, like now, am I going to run into that situation when I've got my kid with me? Or even if I don't have my kid with me, I've got a family at home that's relying upon me. Why am I putting myself at additional risk? And that decision-making process can really screw people up until they get comfortable with the change in their scenario, the, the change in their circumstances. And that, that applies to all sorts of areas of life, right? Our risk tolerance changes. Um, you know, I got a, I've got a mate who, uh, mate, oh, he was so passionate about riding bikes, riding, riding motorbikes, and like at ridiculous speed too. Right? That was that was his thing. And uh, and when he had his first child, he actually sold all his bikes because he's like, I don't trust myself to have a bike and not ride it fast. I can't I can't take those risks. So what he's actually doing is like he's 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 shifted his priority in terms of. Uh, in, in terms of what he's going to do in a critical situation because of changing circumstance, yes. which is exactly what we do all the time with, with a client, right? Yeah. So, so we talk about that a lot. And we talk about that in terms of an equation, right? Each equation has variables and an outcome. And so we get into that in terms of equation manipulation. And what you're talking about is adding variables to the equation, which then changes the outcome, at least your desired outcome when you add kids or family members. And if you're doing protection and you've got one person versus now you've got, you know, uh, an executive or a dignitary, now you've got their wife and their two kids. Now you've got to prioritize that and it changes who you're going to, how you're going to, where you're standing, what you're moving, what you're not moving, where your eyes are working, where they're not working. Um, all that stuff changes. So we, we talk about that a lot. And, and unfortunately, I know exactly how that is. I've, I've been in the same boat. When you start to make things complex like that, um, there's another thing that occurs. Are you familiar with Hicks Law? Yes. Yep. So you've, you've got that in effect, right? Because, you know, the same with, with, with police. The more they add to their duty, but okay, now I, I've got a gun and I've got some ammo. Okay, cool. Now I've got a gun and some OC spray and some ammo. Okay, now I've got a gun, some OC spray, some ammo and an ASP. Okay, now I've got a gun, OC spray, ammo, an ASP, and a taser. Now I've got a gun. So I've, now they're starting to add this bolo. So now you start to add all these things to this guy's duty belt. And in a critical situation, he's got to manage which choice is he going with? The more choices he has, the longer it takes him to cycle through the decision-making process, right? And you can, you can make it a, an OODA loop if that's what you want to do, right? Observe, orient, decide, act. I'm going through this, this, this uh, decision-making process. And the more stuff I have, the longer it takes. And in a critical situation, that's the worst scenario to have. You, you don't want that. And so that's, that's Hicks off for those of you that don't know it. Um, you know, more options, more time, more time, slower decision-making process, which is the opposite of, of what we want. So yeah, I, I, I'm um, acutely aware of, of those things in my world. 
one thing I'd like to draw upon just in there was the concept of decision making. And, and I think one of the things that we take for granted when we've had a lot of training in, in, in high pressure situations and we've done a lot of reps of a, of a certain response, so stimulus equals response, right? So whatever we see, that's going to be an automatic response. When we are training people that don't have that training or that, that don't have that experience, they, don't, they haven't been uh, conditioned for, the, for this, sometimes it, they can get paralyzed in this OODA loop of trying to make sense of what they're seeing and, and when they don't act. And case in point, I mean, uh, yesterday, in, uh, I'm, I'm in Melbourne in Australia. Yesterday morning, uh, we had a truck that uh, ran over five civilians uh, um, just randomly early in the morning. And the, it was, uh, you know, when we first saw the headline, because obviously the headline comes out without any context, like you go, we've, got a, we've had a terror attack. Right. We've had a truck that's run over five people in their 20s and 30s. Uh, what's happened? And uh, in context, I mean, what we've found out, well, yeah, we're now 24 hours removed. It seems like the uh, the driver went over the curb uh, while trying to get around a traffic light. And uh, it seems was unaware that uh, he actually managed to run over five people. That's the claim anyway. <laughs> uh, he continued on, went home, right? The police were waiting for him. Uh, so... But in that situation, like an average civilian, six o'clock in the morning, they, they see people get run over by a truck. Right? There's going to be a lot of paralysis by analysis going on there of like, what does this mean? Am I actually in danger? Whereas from a security mindset, the second I see a, a vehicle attack, my, my mindset is, what else is happening? Like, is, there, is this part of something else? Obviously, you know, if, if there's no immediate threat, let's go give aid. But yeah, get off, get off, get off the X, and then start your assessment. Where are you going? What are you doing? You know, what's the significance of that relevant to you and your principal? Yeah, certainly. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, like, there's a sense making process that I think can slow people down, and uh, I think it's why they like when we're talking about really critical situations, it is so important to build those automatic responses. But uh, yeah, absolutely, I, and that's you're getting into kind of the the fight or flight, and then you want to act, but you can't, you don't have a frame of reference, which gets back to the client recognition, prime decision-making, and then you end up freezing, which is kind of the, the middle ground between, you know, fleeing and fighting. Uh, you want to do something, but you don't know what to do, and then you're stuck, right? Uh, like you said, uh, and now, uh, paralysis by analysis. Mm, mm, absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, about threat awareness, uh, because I, I think one of the things that I, that I first I mean, I was fairly young in my journey when I when I started going into executive protection. But one of the things that was a real eye opener for me was the amount of detail you can you can build around understanding what the threat profile of an individual is. Like who who are they risk? Who are they at risk from? What's it likely to look like? Where are they vulnerable? All those kinds of things. And I think that's something that we can really apply to civilian life for everybody, right? Is understanding what you know, what your threat package is or what your threat profile is and where you're likely to be at risk so that you can then focus your attention on that particular you know, field of fire to use that analogy, right? You can, you can look at that particular gap. Uh, how, do you, how do you walk through that for civilians? Uh, so first of all is, is what happens in your environment. So when we talk about baseline anomaly, that gives you an understanding. Like you need to know what's normal in your realm. That's the first step. What happens there? What are the TTPs or the tactics, techniques, and procedures of the bad guys? What do they typically do to, in the places that you go to? What would make you stand out? Why are you vulnerable in any way, right? So uh, if you're, uh, you know, obviously my conversion is going to be bad for Australia, but if you're six foot five and you're 300 pounds and you're bald and you've got tattoos and you're strapped with a, a rifle and a shotgun and a pistol, 
the, the chance of you being identified as an easy target is, is, is pretty low. Whereas if you're a mother with two babies in her hands, you're pretty vulnerable. Or if you're an older person and you have something of value. Um, so we talk about that, how to reduce your signature, uh, you know, the times that you select to go somewhere and the thing you're doing, uh, your, your level of preparation in terms of, of your, your physical appearance, you know, what your hands are ready to do, if your eyes are scanning and assessing when you're choosing to move or not move, or, you know, we even talk to people about when they're pulling into parking spaces and stuff and taking just a brief pregnant pause to look around and say, do I need to move? Do I need to go somewhere else? Do I need to be in better lighting? Do I need to maybe come back at another time because generally speaking, going to the grocery store, going shopping for clothes or whatever you're doing isn't critical. You can do that at almost any time in, in, in modern life. Um, so we, we make them look at it and look at it closely. And then we start to, to say, hey, how can you remove some of these things and make yourself harder? So the first thing is that baseline anomaly makes them harder because now they're assessing an environment that they normally wouldn't. And then they're picking out the potential threats. So if someone's making eye contact at them, if someone's tracking or tracing them, if someone's mirroring them or following them and pacing them, uh, you know, again, we talked about force multipliers uh, in the way that if they can identify somebody in that realm that's a friendly, that they can help uh, you know, walk them out to their car or assist them in some sort of way, or even make it look like they're with that person. And, and this is something that I would do on a regular basis when I was alone. You know, I'd point to somebody and wave at them. And it looks like now I'm part of that group. And I'm not part of that group. But people naturally like wave, oh, do I not? I don't, I don't know who that is. Who's that guy? But they wave back. All of a sudden, it looks like now you got 10 other people to deal with. So now I'm a harder target, right? Little tiny manipulations that we work on with them to become a harder target. And then we get into the realm of fighting back what they're doing, how they're doing it, and trying to get their, their mindset right, understanding that this may be for your life and you better treat it as such. And so these are the things we're doing. These are the places we're going. This is how you're addressing it. These are the weapons of opportunity. This is where you should go. This is what you should do. Um, stuff like that. So we, we're, we're pretty broad on, on that range with, with our um, civilian clients. Mm. And I think that one part of the equations, as you as you uh, articulated there, about being a being a harder target or making yourself a less attractive target. But then there's the the other side of it is the is manipulating the potential for reward, right? I mean, some people will take higher risk if they think there's a higher reward on on offer. So um, obvious displays of wealth, uh, especially especially I mean for for your world, I mean traveling in in third world countries where uh, you know like you walk around with a with an iPad that represents a month's wages. Uh, or more, right? Then that you're, <laughs> you you paint a, a very attractive target on you, especially if you don't have a protection detail uh, obviously around you. So yeah, that's 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 on point. You're on point. And 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 to be clear, uh, in that realm, they're not going to forego that. You can you can brief them till you're blue in the face, <laughs> and 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 it's not going to be an iPad. It's going to be a Rolex and diamonds and everything else. And it's not going to be a month. It's going to be 10 years worth of wages or a lifetime worth of wages. Um, and unfortunately that forces us to go from a very soft, low signature, no signature kind of uh, team to a very, very high profile uh, team so that we get big and hard real quick uh, when it comes to that. So th that's a very difficult one to manipulate for normal people. It's much easier. Like don't wear your Rolex to Mexico. Don't dress in your nicest clothes. What jeans, and a white t-shirt and no watch and wear some beat up tennis shoes. And, you know, people, people don't want to hear that, but the reality is that's the best way for them to go. Now it's going to be hard for me to change their blonde hair and blue eyes. You know, if they're operators, it's a little different when we color their hair and color their skin and put dark contacts in, but that's not for normal people. So, um, 
Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. The celebrity side, though, is you're just going to change your yeah. signature more as a security team and, and, and go hard. So, and, and in that case, a lot of times, um, to be quite frank with you, we have to hire some bad people sometimes and say, hey, we're coming into your realm and we'd like your permission and we'd like to give you $1,000 to come hang out in your neighborhood for the day. And what that does is that buys us a little bit of safety during that period as we go in and the bad guys in the neighborhood get $1,000 dollars no one messes with us because they know if they mess with us the bad guy's going to deal with them so you know it just depends on your environment but but yes you're you're spot on there yeah i think it's just an awareness of, of uh what sort of value i present in this environment and 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 changing my protection or the controls i've put in place to to manage that if i'm not prepared to not wear the rolex then i better make sure i have some protection with me to 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 even that that equation out to be more in my favor but uh but yeah i think uh I think I was talking to uh, James Hamilton, from Gavin DeBecker and Associates, and uh, we're talking about uh, training uh, for, for them, training operatives, families that are living in, in third world countries, right? There might be the family is going over. So the, sometimes the, the operative themselves has all the skills and all the knowledge, but the family is a little bit oblivious. So so we had to train families. Uh, James was, used to do that in the FBI with um with, with foreign field workers. And uh, it is quite interesting, like just opening people's eyes and going, you know what? You don't think you're wealthy, but to these people, you are, right? And to, to these people, just kidnapping you and asking for a ransom is going to set them up for life. So, uh, you know, don't make yourself an easy target. Yeah, that's a normal one, like for us. And I know Gavin DeVecker's focus pretty much on celebrities, but um, so in the governmental side, the families go through what's called a FACT course, F-A-C-T, Foreign Affairs Counterterrorism Training. So basically that gives you essentially an in-brief. Hey, it's a week long of training. We're telling you what's going to go on, how things are going to be different, what you can expect, what happens if you get kidnapped, you know, where you go, what you do. So that, that we do with some of our clients who are open to it, but on the celebrity side, very few are. On the executive side, um, they're much more open to it. Um, and, and we can put a lot of things in place. But, but the truth of the matter is, especially overseas, the biggest threat is from the inside. It's, it's not from the outside. Uh, it's the people you let into your world. It's the nannies. Uh, it's the housekeepers. It's the security guards. It's, it's those individuals that have access to the inner workings of your system. So they know when you're coming, when you're going. They've established a rapport with the people. It's normal for them to be there and doing things. Uh, you know, you, you can't surveil them 24-7. So they're going to have some time alone with certain areas and certain things. Um, you know, that's, that's by far the greatest threat. Much bigger than the outside mm. nobody wants to talk about that well again it's a matter of being aware of your own threat profile isn't it i mean if you if, if there's a high enough reward people will embed themselves in your life to get there i mean no one's going to embed themselves in your life to steal the 40 bucks in your wallet and, and a credit card but uh but if it means access to a child or access to a, a loved one or you'll know, be able to be able to extort money over a long period of time then all of a sudden the uh, the equation starts to balance out that it's worth going to this effort and I, and I think even even we talk about overseas and and uh, you know foreign staff and so on or or external staff, uh, but but even so we can apply that to um, yeah just to who we let into our lives right we we know that most most predatory attacks on children come from trusted family members or or people that we've invited into the child's life we know that most most rapes occur from intimate partners uh, or, or people that we know uh, so. It's, it's a, I think the, the vetting thing that you talked about, I mean, while you're talking about it from an employment angle and, and, and giving them temptation to see how they do it, I think it's, it's important that we apply those, that sort of mindset of vetting new people into our lives before we give them any sort of trust. 
Yeah, to, to trust somebody without a history makes no sense. Even on recommendation, uh, that, that doesn't work well. You have to see them across time in many different conditions. Uh, many different situations in their lives will change. Situations that you present them will change. It's, it's difficult. It takes time. There's, there's no short-term solution for that. Uh, and unfortunately, in protection, sometimes we're forced to have to trust or count on some people in, in a pinch. And, and it happens, but I, that's not ideal. It's less mm. than ideal. Mm, absolutely. All right, so as we as we approach the end of the uh, the main interview, I want to give you a chance to uh, to plug your book and and your company and what you do. So uh, tell tell us a bit about the the book, what it's called, where they can get it, what they'll learn from it. Okay, I'll start with showing you what it looks like. All right, there we go. Product placement. Bam, product placement. So it's called Protection Forum from Humanity. And essentially what it is, is a book for the average citizen, a private citizen who doesn't have, you know, any type of specialized training in protection is not from the military or law enforcement. And they want to apply systems or processes or strategies to their daily life, to their families' lives, to their businesses that will help them to protect or secure that, to be more likely to survive an attack if it did happen, but uh, also to prevent it from ever having a occurred in the first place. Again, we talk about uh, target hardening. Uh, we get into systems in the book that deal with, you know, how you would deter things from happening, how you would be able to detect them when they happen, how you'd be able to delay it, you know, uh, when it when it when the onset occurred physically, and then how you can manage it and mitigate it and all kinds of fun stuff there. We get into different assessment processes and systems. Um, you're probably familiar with Carver. We get into Carver uh, at length. We get into different train analysis uh, systems and processes is just how to think, how to look at stuff. And it's in very basic, broad terms. It's not written in a super technical way. It's meant to be a, a very common sense approach so that you can apply it to multiple things. It's not narrowed down to one specific thing. And all the systems deal with protecting people in, in, in places like locations and things like assets. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's a good read. I think it's a simple read within you know, two days, you can get through it pretty easily and uh, you can immediately apply those things. Awesome, man. There's so much, so much value to be had in those sort of conversations. And, uh, and I think as far as books go, you'll learn a lot more from that kind of stuff than, uh, than looking at static pictures of someone demonstrating an armbar. So I think, yes. Uh, yeah. And, and to, to, to that end, we don't get into shooting. We don't get into physical fighting. This is more of thinking, right? How you're looking at situations, how you'd adjust to it, how to basically tip the scale in your favor, for anything uh, violence related or, or threat related or anything that uh, revolves around protection of something, a person, place, or thing. Um, give me two seconds, I'll open this up and just give you a quick, a quick look at uh, or a quick read of uh, what some of the chapters are. So we get into uh, problem analysis solutions, situational awareness, adaptability and foresight, environmental analysis, criminal minds, common dangers, uh, required knowledge, response options, uh, attack and counterattack equations, um, equation manipulation and disruption, uh, soft skills versus hard skills, stress and inoculators, advancing foreign travel, um, all kinds of, of fun stuff like that. So if you don't know anything about the subject or it's limited or you don't have any real world experience, it's probably a really good read for you. If you're a tier one operator and you just retired from SEAL Team 6, it's probably not your book. That might be a good one to give to someone who won't listen to you. So. Yes, which is which is pretty common. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I was just having this conversation with my kids the other day. I was doing a, I was doing a webinar, <laughs> and I'm like, people are signing in from all around the world to listen to me, and they're like, people pay to listen to you. I'm like, I know, right? Like, I've been trying to talk to you guys for like your whole lives, and you won't listen to me. 
Uh, you're the people on the other side of the planet waking up at 2 a.m. to listen to me. Come on, guys. Uh, <laughs> anyway. Uh, Todd, thanks very much for your time, man. This is end for our, our main interview. I know you're going to stick around and do some bonus content for us in, in just a second. But for those leaving us here, I want to thank you on behalf of all the listeners because uh, I'm sure we've dropped some knowledge that, uh, that will help some people. Thank you. Uh, if anybody wants to find out any more information, Tour Protection, T-O-U-R-P-R-O-T-E-C-T-I-O-N.com is our business address. You can see some of our clients are the ones that at least are public. Um, we are now finally on social media after 20 something years of avoiding it like the plague uh, at Tour Training on Instagram. And then uh, if you Google my name, I'm sure you'll find me in a site with a ton of pictures and information, stuff like that. So awesome. thank you, man. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, thank you very much. All right, what an amazing conversation. I had a great time talking to Todd. Uh, what a great dude and uh, an amazing legacy, amazing lineage, uh, just everything about it. Just had a great time. Uh, I want to give a shout out to the American Warrior Society uh, and Rich over at American Warrior Society for recommending Todd. Uh, Todd was on uh, their podcast and uh, Rich reached out to me. I've been on the podcast as well. And uh, Rich reached out and said, hey, this is a dude you got to have. And I'm so glad he did. So I uh, hats off to American Warrior Society. If you don't already follow that podcast, make sure you do. That's it for this week. I'll talk to you again next time.